The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, California, streaming online at KUCI.org and podcasting on iTunes. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd, the show's engineer. We've enjoyed bringing this show since 2005. Your host is Mari Frank, a local attorney since 1985. She's a certified information privacy professional. Mari's testified many times on privacy issues in Congress and the California legislature. You may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, The O'Reilly Factor, and many more shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Mari, what's our show about this morning? Well, today our show is about healthcare privacy, and I'm really excited because we actually have someone who works with University of California, Irvine. Brian Scott has been involved in healthcare privacy in various positions since 2000. And he's worked in other healthcare organizations from health information management to radiology administration and compliance. For the last 13 years, though, however, Brian has worked for UC Irvine Health in a variety of privacy-related roles. And he has extensive experience working for the protection of and when necessary, the release of information. Brian has been directly involved in procedures and workflow to protect patient information and, when appropriate, worked with external auditors, monitors, IRBs, which are um, treatment patient operation issues, and research teams to manage appropriate disclosures while protecting patient privacy, which we all worry about. Currently, he is the Senior Privacy Analyst for the Privacy and Compliance Department at the University of California Irvine Medical Center up in Orange, and Brian helps manage privacy-related workflows regarding disclosures of PHI, which is personal health information uh, for treatment patient operations, as well as research. And he's directly involved with training medical center staff to prevent accidental or unauthorized disclosures that we always worry about. And he conducts routine monitoring and auditing auditing to detect and mitigate inappropriate disclosures of patient information. So he wears a big hat with lots of little hats underneath it. And we're just excited that he's here to join us and let everybody know about it, at least in the Orange County area at UCI, and which really applies to many other university hospitals, what's going on. So thank you so much, Brian, for joining us. Hi, good morning, Mary. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So tell us about your average day. What does a privacy analyst do? Well, so I work for the Department of Compliance and Privacy, and compliance departments really kind of have their start from the federal federal sentencing guidelines. Companies that had bad actors were offered a chance to have reduced sentences if they had what was 
deemed to be an effective compliance program. And so there are seven elements of a effective compliance program. And uh, without going into all of the details, I'm involved specifically in a couple of them. Most importantly, I'm involved on the education side. So uh, my shop actually helps write the privacy and security training that staff are required to take every year. We also do regular compliance rounds, which uh, we'll talk about a little later. And we also do monitoring and auditing of departments and workflow to hopefully prevent privacy breaches and then mitigate them if they do occur because ultimately, you know, our primary purpose is to help keep the PHI secure of our patients. Right. So explain to my audience exactly what you mean by PHI and really what it entails. Well, PHI, or Protected Health Information, was defined in the HIPAA Privacy Rule. And what, it's, what it is is individually identifiable health information that is held or transmitted by the entity in any form, whether that's uh, an electronic form, we're in an electronic medical record environment now, or whether that's on paper or whether that's done orally. Um, it's any information, including demographic information, which relates to the individual's past treatment, their present treatment or future treatment, whether that's physical or mental health treatment or any other condition. It talks about the provision of health care to the individual or it talks about the past, present, or future payment for the provision of health care to the individual. And it's any information that identifies the individual or for which there is a reasonable basis to believe that it could be used to identify the individual. Right. So um, there is what's in, besides the health information, it usually is going to say something like their health insurance number, their, or if it's Medicare right now, it's their Social Security number. However, that's going to be changing soon. It, um, it, it'll probably have their address and, that is, and a phone actually, number, right? Yep. There's actually, for it to be de-identified, there's a list of 18 identifiers that need to be completely removed from the patient's record. And that includes things like email addresses. That includes even URLs for um for the internet, it includes fax numbers, it includes telephone numbers, it includes biometric identifiers such as fingerprints or voice prints. Mm. So it's a wide range of information. Right, right. So let's talk about, um, so you talked about HIPAA, when, which is the federal law. So let's kind of talk about the difference between HIPAA and the California medical information, uh, you know, that are yeah. our state health care. Yeah, so CAMIA is what we have to deal with more than HIPAA here in California. So the Confidentiality of Medical Information Act was a law that was written in California, and CAMIA's primary purpose is to protect an individual's medical information, whether that's in electronic or paper format, from unauthorized disclosure. So HIPAA originally was not only dealing with protecting patient information, it was also making sure that patients had access to their records because the records are owned by the facility, they're not owned by the patient. 
But HIPAA made sure that patients were able to get access to their records and they could ask for who the records had been disclosed to and things like that. COMIA specifically, their purpose is to protect the individual's information. Why this matters is because HIPAA has what is referred to as the preemption clause. And when you're dealing with COMIA versus HIPAA, HIPAA specifically says that if a state has privacy practices, rules that are more beneficial to the patient, then HIPAA actually defers to the state and the state laws preempt the federal laws. So in any instance where there's a conflict between HIPAA and COMIA, we have to do an analysis as to which one is more beneficial to the patient, and we have to follow that. So we have to follow HIPAA, we have to follow CAMIA, we have to follow IPA, we have to follow LPS, but the two big drivers for us are HIPAA and CAMIA. So you named some other um, acronyms there that we don't know what they are. So... So <laughs> so you're going to have to explain what the other two are. So we know that there's the federal law that covers medical information and medical records, and then we know about the California law, uh, which is the confidentiality of medical information in California. What were the other two that you just said? Sure. So IPA is the Information Practices Act, and oh, that just okay. talks about information because we, uh, we're at an academic medical center. So we also deal with... Um, you know, employee records and things like that. And California looks very specifically at information. Right. Um, and then LPS is going to be Lanterman. That's going to be the mental health rule that we have, that California has four protected classes of information, and they're held with, uh, ex- with a, uh, an extra layer of protection on them, and that includes mental health treatment and diagnosis, and that includes HIV, result testing results uh-huh. and that includes genetic testing results mm. and it includes um, drug and alcohol abuse uh, diagnosis and treatment records wow 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 so let's talk about some of the exceptions to HIPAA and CAMIA so the biggest exceptions are going to be the big three of treatment payment and operation so when you're you know, running a healthcare facility, there's a certain amount of healthcare information that as an institution you're going to be able to use internally as part of the treatment practice and as part of the payment and as part of operations. So if you're treating a patient and another physician comes into the room, it's absolutely allowable for you to share that information with the incoming physician because he needs that information for treatment. Sure. And the same thing is payment and the same thing is operations. If we're looking at how to minimize ED wait times, we can look at patient logs to see how long a patient waited in the ED to see what changes we potentially could make to increase that throughput And we can do follow-up audits to see patient wait times in the ED in a month, a week, six months, to see if we've had a decrease in wait time. So we're allowed to access information for operations. And then payments, of course, when we, you know, bill insurance companies, we have to let them know what what we have done to the patient. And so we have to disclose that information to them to get payment. 
Right, right. And that's that's not really something that's so personal. You know, it's not like your own medical information about your body. So those make sense. So you, you also talk about uh, research and, and how does that work in terms of medical information for research? And then you said QI. What, what did you mean that QI stood for? So QI is going to be quality improvement, and those oh, are okay. some of the areas that we, that we take a look at. So the big difference for us is we have to define whether it's QI or whether it's research, because there's a difference as to, as to how we're allowed to access and use that information. So in general, research is defined as a systematic investigation that is primarily designed to develop or contribute to generalizable knowledge. And what that means really in layman's terms is that it's something that you can use anywhere. QI in healthcare, which is where I work, focuses on taking the existing knowledge base and trying to tweak it a little bit to improve the quality of care, but in a specific situation. So if I work in an ED and I want to improve patient throughput, how quickly we get patients from the waiting room into a bed and then, you know, back home, that process is going to be specific to my medical center. It's not going to necessarily be appropriate to someone who is even down the street. Right, so, right. So we're allowed to use that information only internally within the department because it's part of a QI process to improve our operations. Once you start talking about research and information that is generalizable to the entire population, wherever they may be, now that's a whole nother area that we have to take a look at. And that's when we start looking at identifiable versus de-identifiable data and consents and HIPAA releases and things like that. Right. And you were talking a little bit before about the difference between identifiable and de-identifiable data. And so you said that there were a whole list of things that you would have to de-identify. So, so what is it that um, when you use for research, is it all de-identifiable? So a lot of that depends on the study and the nature of the study. Okay. So in many cases, the researchers themselves do not want to know about the patient because it's a double-blind study. They don't want their results to be influenced by knowing who the patient is on the other side. So in some cases, they are interested in knowing because they're looking at a at a investigational medication, for example, that may target a specific um, disease factor that one ethnic group may have um, in a larger amount than the general population, such as sickle cell anemia. So it would be important for them to know that a patient was African-American versus Caucasian because they're targeting a disease that has a higher prevalence in the African-American community. Right. So when they talk about identifiable versus de-identifiable, the most important has to do with what the IRB has determined is in the best interest of the patient. The IRB works to make sure that the patient's rights are protected from a safety standpoint. And they also have the obligation to look at the welfare of the patients. One of the 
one of the boxes that they that a researcher has to fill out when they submit for approval to the IRB is what they're going to do to protect patient data. Because especially, as you know, in, in your role and in, in your life, that when data gets out, patients can be put at risk. You know, in the information age, they can right. find it, someone can use it, and next thing you know, you know, it's identity theft. And so they, the researchers have to make a privacy plan when they submit to the IRB on if they're going to obtain identifiable data and if they are going to obtain identifiable data, how they're going to protect it, how they're going to keep it. And so, okay, so the IRB we talked about is the Institution Review Board, right? Yes. Okay. So um, do, do, is there a need for affirmative consent if it's going to be identifiable information? A lot of that depends, again, on the risk to the patient. So in some cases, they do, um, they do retrospective research studies where there's minimal risk to the patient because they're looking at something that the net that has been cast is so broad that you're aggregating the data and it would be nearly impossible to backward identify the patients. So an example of that would be a study that I was uh, involved with quite some time ago, but they were looking at the prevalence of trauma victims that lived close to liquor stores. Hmm. And so it was, a, it was a social study as well as a medical study. And so what they wanted to do is they wanted to look at accident. They wanted to look at trauma incidents, and they wanted to relate those to how close they were to liquor stores for either drunk driving or, you know, pedestrians who might have been drunk on their way in or out of the liquor store yeah. or whether people who got drunk and then committed crimes and the victims happened to be close by. So in those instances, the identifiable information that they specifically wanted was an address so that they could determine how close it was to a liquor store. Mm -hmm. So and they didn't want any medical information beyond the diagnosis to verify that they were a trauma victim. So once they had the diagnosis and the address, then they knew that it was within a certain radius, and then they didn't need that information anymore. So they wanted access to it just so they could make that measurement. Hmm. Interesting. So people might not even know that their information was used at, under those circumstances, right? Well, there's a couple things that are done to protect a patient that notify them that something like that could happen and give them an option of act of opting out. So I see. on uh -huh. the so on the terms and conditions that most patients sign, you know, it's required that they're given a copy of notice of privacy practices right. and the terms and conditions. So they talk about that, you know, we may look at your data on a generalizable level. What really patients are worried about and, and what would always require HIPAA and consent is when you're dealing with any kind of research project that could potentially impact the patient's health. And that's when things really get strict in what can be obtained and what can be released. And in those cases, it's always explicit. The patient would have to sign a consent to 
uh, participate in the research study, and the consent would usually outline what kind of information is going to be obtained from them and used. And then in addition to that, they would have to sign a HIPAA release. In California, there's a, California is an extremely privacy-friendly state as far as the patient is concerned. So the release in the state of California even has to be a specific font size. And has to concert yeah. certain verbiage in it, right? So they can and, understand what they're signing. Yep, yep, <laughs> right. yep. Yeah. And so, and so, if they were going to be involved in the study, then they would need to sign something like that. And if it was any of the protected areas that we talked about earlier, then they would have to specifically note on the cons- on the HIPAA release that they wanted that information to be uh, released to the research team. Right. Right. Yeah. Huh. So much stuff going on with with all of this, with privacy and medical records. How do you do privacy audits? So the most important thing is that we do uh, on-site audits of facilities, specifically the various clinical areas at the hospital, to look at their privacy practices. So we will show up unannounced because we don't want people cleaning up before we get there. So we show up unannounced and we do a walkthrough and we just walk around like we belong there and we wait to see how long it takes for someone to say, oh, excuse me, can I help you? You know, (laughs) oh, I, I I didn't see that you had a badge. We walk around and we look for papers that have been left uh, sitting on tables. We look for, you know, patient records that uh, have been left available where anybody walking down the hallway could view them. We look for workstations that have been left unlocked so that anyone walking down the hall could access someone's information. Mm. We look for um, schedules that are maybe someone printed a schedule for the entire day and posted it in a wall where patients have access to be able to see that. So we do routine audits. We hit every single one of the different clinical locations throughout the UCI medical health system. So we'll go to our ancillary clinics. We go to our, you know, our emergent, uh, our emergent care clinics like down in Tustin, you know, our Newport Oncology Centers. We hit all of these different facilities unannounced and we do privacy walkthroughs and look for potential areas of vulnerability. And then we, when we're done with that, We'll sit down and we'll talk to the manager. We'll let them know kind of what our initial findings were. We take pictures when appropriate to say, okay, here's a door that was propped open so someone could have gotten into this area. And we put all of that in a report, and then we feed all of that back to the manager, um, like I said, kind of an initial review right there at the point in time. And then we do a more formal report that goes back to them later. And then we just do, we hit all of the various areas, and then we just start at the top and do them all again. Yeah. And so you have to use different people so they don't recognize you, right? (laughs) I think because you see, you know, maybe you go on a Monday and someone's working, and then you go on a Wednesday and someone different is working, and by now it's been a couple months, and maybe they remember you, maybe they don't. And so... It's, uh, we usually are able to sneak in at least initially without someone recognizing who we are, but pretty quick, you know, they start asking who we are. And then because our goal is that 
right away someone's going to step up and say, right. you know, who are you? Should you be here? Yeah. And then as soon as we let them know, the cat's out of the bag anyway. Right, so. right, right. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, if somebody makes their own badge, you know, like, well, gee, I don't recognize you, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what about privacy monitoring? What is that? And what do you guys do for that? So privacy monitoring, there's a big um, there's a big part of HIPAA that's it's the security rule, and what it talked about is unencrypted patient health inf- or protected health information, and it requires that information that is in transit must be encrypted. And so where it's most appropriate is when we have a care relationship with another facility here in Orange County. Let's say it's the VA or it's Chalk. And that facility has requested copies of a patient's medical records because they're going to be establishing their care at that facility. So if we were going to email copies of their records to them, we would have to do so in an encrypted manner. So most healthcare facilities today use a solution that is referred to as DLP, and that is data loss prevention. And basically, it's not an individual because nobody could, you know, read everybody's email, but it's an algorithm that scans the outgoing email traffic to look for medical record numbers and names in, in emails. And it looks for patient information. And if that patient information is included in the email, then it stops it and does not allow it to go out. And it sends an alert to someone who's either on the security team or the privacy team that lets them know that someone just tried to send unencrypted patient information outside of the institution. Mm. And then it becomes up to the privacy team and the security team to verify that the disclosure was permissible under you know, under TPO, and also to make sure that it is sent encrypted because there's lots of reasons why information needs to get out. We have state reporting obligations that we have to make. Obviously, if we transfer a patient to another facility, they have to get copies of their records for right, care. Right. So, the, so there's a number of, of legitimate reasons why that transaction would need to happen. So we never argue with them about what should happen if it falls under that scope. We just talk to them about how it should happen and making sure that it's sent encrypted. And then once they encrypt it, then it's allowed to be delivered. And it's protecting the patient's privacy because it can't be hacked in mid-transmission. Right. One of the things that's really important is that the patient himself or herself get that information. So how can they get it they can get it encrypted or do they go into a portal? What what do they do to get their personal, uh, their patient information themselves? So we actually have a couple different mechanisms that are in place for patients to get their information. And the first one that we always like to put send people to is MyChart, which is their uh, the Epic platform that allows them to get access to their information, and that is a that is a secure transmission, and they can view their records through that application. We also have the option of medical correspondence because some people are not that computer savvy, and they want to get actual paper copies of their records. 
And so we do have a department that is called Medical Correspondence, and their primary function is release of information. So all day long, they are facilitating release of information from the institution to either other healthcare providers or to the patients themselves because they've requested access to their information, or in some rare cases, even courts when it's been, you know, a patient was a victim of an assault and they need to determine the nature of injury for a court case or something like that. Wonderful. Well, we're just almost out of time. So I didn't, I wanted to just ask for people who do use UCI services, and I do, I have my ophthalmologist through UCI who I love. Um, so what, where would you tell them to go to get their patient information? How would they do that if they want to get it online and get it encrypted? So I would tell them that the next time they go to their appointment, because there's a big push right now, and in many cases there's someone who is in the clinic at the clinic level who will be able to get them set up with getting access to their records electronically. and Because they need to get an access code, they need to verify identity, and so the best time and the best way to do that is when you're actually making the appointment. And just let them know that you want to sign up to get your records electronically and uh, in, in Epic, and they'll walk you through that process, and they'll get you the code. And then once you have the code, you can activate um, your electronic portal, and you can communicate with your physician that way. You can receive results that way, and it's all encrypted. It's all secure. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Brian Scott, who is the Senior Privacy Analyst for the Privacy and Compliance Department at the University of California, Irvine Medical Center. You are just filled with wonderful information to help us understand the process, and we will keep in touch and have you again. So thank you so much. You want to just give the website? Sure. Um, UCI.edu. Oh, <laughs> so, sure. <laughs> I wasn't you sure out. which one to give out. There you go, <laughs> uci.edu. Okay. Thank you so much, and we will have you back again. You take care, all right? All right. Thank you, Mari. Have a fantastic day. You too. You've all been right. listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. and visit our website at privacypiracy.org. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.